It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 279 for February 12th, 2012. This week, excitement builds as Windows 8 Beta 2 release date nears. How safe is that website you're visiting? In short circuits, 250,000 users tell Apple to clean up its act. Yes, Windows 8 will have angry birds. The New York Times looks at multiple monitors. Kodak exits the digital camera business. And TechBiter Worldwide gets a new sound. Microsoft will release the second public beta of Windows 8 sometime this month. Late February is the announced target. That could be any time from the 15th through the end of the month, and February has an extra day this year. The version of Windows 8 that I've been using is dozens, if not hundreds, of builds earlier than what Microsoft will release later this month. Pundits of various stripes are already saying that Windows 8 will prove to be far better than Apple's latest operating system, or that it'll be dead on arrival. Both of those extremes are silly, and they're largely designed to sell magazines or build website traffic. I'll try to stick to the factual middle ground. There's a fair amount of speculation that the release date for the next beta version of Windows 8 will be February 29th, the leap day in a leap year. If true, that's clever. One of the first things I noticed with Windows 8 was the absence of a start menu, but there was an on-screen stub that appeared to be where the start menu would go. The initial release aimed at developers included the Metro interface, which is primarily for use on mobile phones and tablets. At the time, I said I hoped that Microsoft wasn't planning to eliminate the start menu because that would create usability problems for those of us who still prefer keyboards and mice. Recently leaked screenshots now show a taskbar at the bottom of the screen, but still no orb. That's the round thing on Windows 7 that marks the location of the start menu. Hovering a mouse in the lower left corner, though, reportedly causes the orb to appear. On a touch screen, touching that area of the screen would do the same thing, according to some who are already working with some of those later builds. You'll see an image on the TechBiter Worldwide website from winunleaked.tk. That image does have an orb in the lower left corner, so clearly there's information, misinformation, possibly some disinformation, and just a lot of plain old speculation. So, if the start menu remains, that's good news, not unexpected, but still an indication that Microsoft isn't planning something so radical that it'll be all but unusable. And more good news involves ARM devices. ARM processors are used for portable devices, phones, tablets, netbooks, things like that. ARM is a 32-bit reduced instruction set computer chip that was first used by Acorn computers back in the 1980s. Starting in 2009, some manufacturers introduced ARM-based netbooks to compete with netbooks powered by Intel's Atom processors. Earlier, Microsoft had signaled plans to drop the desktop and concentrate exclusively on Metro for ARM devices. Just about everybody outside of Microsoft seemed to think that was a bad idea, and it appears that Microsoft has rethought plans for system-on-a-chip devices. ARM computers are considered to be system-on-a-chip units. Of particular interest is a recent quote on a Microsoft blog. 
in that quote, Microsoft says that because system-on-a-chip devices go into low-power standby instead of being turned off, this enables some great connected scenarios, such as always having email up to date and being able to receive instant messages or phone calls while still delivering amazing battery life. Okay, no news there. But the Microsoft blog post continued to mention desktop applications that, and I quote here, presented a tougher challenge because they've been designed over the years to expect either full access to the system resources when running in the fore or background, or no access when the PC is asleep, end quote. Now, reading between the lines here, it seems pretty clear that Microsoft expects some desktop applications to run on system-on-a-chip devices under Windows 8. For that to work, the desktop would need to be present on those devices. Mike Halsey, a Microsoft MVP and author of books about Windows operating system, could reasonably be expected to have a pretty good insight into the current state of affairs and what's coming down the road. Halsey recently wrote about some of the new features that he's most looking forward to. That article was in stark contrast to those who have written that there's nothing new in Windows 8 and that Windows 8 will simply be another Vista. One of the features that Halsey lists is one that I've mentioned before as being a big step forward. It's actually two options known collectively as Reset and Refresh. If you've ever installed an application that caused system problems that uninstalling the offending application didn't fix, you'll appreciate the ability to roll back changes. This feature, by the way, goes far beyond the current Restore Point technology. If you currently own any kind of tablet, you know that tablets are single-user devices. Unlike PCs on which you can create an account for each person in the family, tablets have no accounts. User accounts will be available on Windows 8 tablets, and if competing tablets don't find a way to match that feature, Windows 8 tablets will have a substantial advantage in the marketplace. Windows to Go is another feature that Halsey is looking forward to. Here's what he wrote about it, and I quote, it's one thing to be able to carry files around with you on a pen drive, but so far it's been the preserve of expensive third-party software to allow you to run the entire operating system from a pen drive. Now Windows 8 will bring you the opportunity to carry your copy of Windows and its software with you wherever you go. No longer will we need to fret about leaving the laptop at home. Just plug the pen drive into any PC and hey, presto, there it is. End quote. It'll be interesting to see how this functions with applications such as those from Adobe that are licensed to and activated on specific hardware. I have mentioned the improved file management that comes with Windows 8, and Halsey is enthusiastic about it too. He writes, and I quote, The changes and improvements to file management in Windows 8 are such that I can't help but wonder why it's taken so long to do things that are so obvious. The new copy and replace dialogues are extremely helpful, and the simple fact that you'll be able to pause a copy or move operation, shut your computer off, go out for the night with friends, and continue the copy from where you left off the following morning is, frankly, worth the upgrade on its own. End quote. Among the other features that Halsey cites are better synchronization with Windows phones. I wouldn't know about that because my cell phone is probably about 15 years old, and it still works for phone calls, which is what I use it for. I've noticed that even in the early beta release of Windows 8 that I'm using, applications seem to run just a bit faster than they do on Windows 7. That's particularly remarkable because the beta release undoubtedly contains debugging code and the production code hasn't been fully optimized. If anything, I would expect a beta system to be considerably slower. 
When the next public beta becomes available, sometime later this month, I'll load it up and continue to let you know from time to time just how things are progressing. There have been lots of stories about malware on commercial websites, and you might be wondering how to tell the difference between a healthy site and an infected site. VeriSign has released a white paper that's intended for use by website operators, but it also contains some information that's of interest to the rest of us. By way of an advisory notice, keep in mind that VeriSign sells services that are designed to defend websites against such attacks, and white papers are often used as marketing tools. Malware is the term applied to any form of software that's designed to harm a computer or the computer user. Criminals who find security weaknesses in web servers can install these applications so that they're delivered to unsuspecting site visitors. The malware application may display a pop-up advertisement or install applications designed to locate and send confidential information to the thieves. Email filtering is a lot more robust than it used to be, and firewalls are found in most businesses and many homes these days, so email is no longer the vector of choice for malware. Malware code is not easily spotted by website operators. When installed, malware can deliver so-called drive-by installations on computers with no protection or with substandard protection. It's important to note that a computer with a comprehensive up-to-date protective application probably isn't vulnerable to the vast majority of malware. So for malware to spread, two errors are needed, one by the website operator and the other by the computer user. Malware has been found on large, high-volume websites. It's also been found on small, low-volume sites. Thieves may actually prefer low-volume sites because they typically have fewer protective measures in place. The VeriSign white paper lists two methods that crooks use to install malware on computers. One way for an attacker to make a victim's browser execute their malicious code is simply to ask the victim to visit a website that's infected with malware. Of course, most victims will not visit a site if told it's infected, so the attacker must mask the nefarious intent of the website. Sophisticated attackers use the latest delivery mechanisms and often send malware-infected messages over social networks, such as Facebook, or through instant messaging systems. While these methods have proved successful to a degree, they still rely on tempting a user to visit a particular website. The other method mentioned in the white paper, other attackers choose to target websites that potential victims will visit on their own. To do this, an attacker compromises the targeted website and inserts a small piece of HTML code that links back to their server. This code can be loaded from any location, including a completely different website. Each time a user visits a website compromised in this manner, the attacker's code has the chance to infect their system with malware. Why do people do this? Well, infected computers can turn a profit for thieves in several ways. Computers can be used to send spam or to serve stolen software. An application may be designed to capture bank account information and passwords. Networked groups of infected computers called botnets can be used to operate distributed denial-of-service attacks aimed at a particular site. Some operators of pornography sites run distributed denial-of-service attacks against other pornography sites 
They do this in an attempt to eliminate the competition. Infected computers can also send fake messages purporting to be from, oh, say, the Internal Revenue Service, a bank, a package delivery company, or anybody else. The crooks who run these systems are anything but stupid, and some of them are highly inventive. When phishing, the thieves have plenty of lures. Links purporting to make new audio or video selections available on various social media sites often take anyone who clicks to a file that installs malware. Banner ads sometimes lead to malware. You may be offered a downloadable file that contains malware. There's really no shortage of threats. But again, it's important to remember that a well-maintained, well-protected computer is far less likely to be compromised than one that's running a three-year-old version of Joe Bob's Computer Emporium Antivirus and Photo Editor. And no, as far as I know, there is no such product as that. The key, really, is avoiding problems. On any commercial or banking site, any site where you'd expect to view or provide private data, be sure the site is using a secure sockets layer connection and that the site's security certificate is both current and valid. Any warning that your browser displays about an invalid security certificate is a warning that you should take seriously. VeriSign summarizes it this way, and I quote the white paper, Online sales and services have experienced tremendous growth over the past decade. However, the increasing use of the Internet in everyday life has also brought a rise in nefarious activity. Malware is becoming more pervasive and jeopardizes the growth of e-commerce by fostering fears of compromised personal information. This leads to trepidation and suboptimal results for online businesses. There needs to be an effective means to combat the use of malware if e-commerce is to reach its full potential. End quote. VeriSign and several other companies provide security measures, and one of those should be in place on just about any commercial website. short circuits, Apple is by no means the only electronics manufacturer to have its devices built in China, and it's certainly not the only U.S. electronics company using Foxconn's factory, where several workers have committed suicide and where about 150 Chinese Foxconn workers threatened to commit suicide last year by jumping off the factory's roof. Foxconn is the world's largest electronics manufacturer. In 2010 and 2011, at least 14 workers at Foxconn factories in China killed themselves as a result of what are described as horrendous working conditions. Foxconn addressed the problem this way. They forced workers to sign a pledge that they would not commit suicide. Now, some owners of Apple products, 250,000 or so of them, want Apple to force some changes in China. This week, those protesters delivered petitions to various high-profile Apple stores, including the new Showcase store in New York's Grand Central Terminal. But they also delivered petitions to stores in San Francisco, Washington, London, and Bangalore. Apple CEO Tim Cook wrote to Apple employees last month defending Apple's labor practices. Cook says the company is attacking problems when they're identified and that Apple is committed to educating workers about their rights. 
The petition was created on and popularized by the website Change.org. It was started by the owner of several Apple products who learned about working conditions in Foxconn's plants and decided that public pressure might force Apple to improve conditions at the Taipei-based Foxconn technology. iPad and Android users have Angry Birds, and the next Windows 8 beta will include access to the Windows Store, which is Microsoft's equivalent of the Apple App Store in the Android market. If you're going to have a store, you need products, and among those products available at launch time will be Wordament, Angry Birds, Crash Course, Toy Soldiers, Rocket Riot. In other words, important business-related applications. And yes, that was a little bit of sarcasm. Windows 8 system will include applications such as Pinball and Solitaire, too. Now, some of these apps are free. Some require a payment. Developers will receive 70% of the income from their applications, with Microsoft taking 30%. But if the app exceeds $25,000 in sales, the developer will receive 80% instead of 70%. Oh, and speaking of Angry Birds, Rovio released several new levels for the various versions of the game this week. The total number of Angry Birds levels has now reached 300 across all the various versions. That's a lot of Angry Birds. Monitors have become larger over the years, and some people think that adding one really large monitor is better than, or at least equal to, using two monitors. In my opinion, that is not the case. Replacing a smaller cluttered monitor with a larger monitor just leads to larger clutter. Having multiple monitors isn't the right solution for everyone, but if you spend a lot of time in front of a computer and you realize that you're constantly moving one application out of the way of another, You are a candidate for more than one monitor. Generally, one monitor is used for the primary task at hand. The second monitor is reserved for reference materials, control panels, and things like that. Users of applications such as Adobe's InDesign or Adobe Photoshop find that that second monitor is helpful, in fact essential, for those applications' many controls. If you're a video producer, well, the second monitor is a necessity, not a luxury. Some people even need a third monitor, or a fourth. In these cases, the first and second monitors are used as I've described. The third and fourth monitors display other information that needs to be visible at all times. For example, in a data processing center where someone needs constant access to a monitor program that displays system status messages, or stockbrokers who need to watch specific trades while performing other tasks, they might be candidates for third and fourth monitors. The article in the New York Times by Matt Richtel says that companies are increasingly providing workers with a second monitor. You'll find a link to that article on the TechBiter Worldwide website, by the way. The article says that tech firms sold 179 million monitors worldwide last year and only 130 million desktop computers. 179 million monitors, 130 million computers. Aha! That means more screens per desk. 
The article quoted Rhoda Alexander, who heads the Monitor and Tablet Research at IHSI Supply. Monitors are bigger, too. The average monitor sold worldwide is 21 inches now, up from 18 inches five years ago. little quick math here. 130 monitors for every 100 computers sold. And some people keep their existing monitor when they buy a new computer. So there are a lot more computers out there now with multiple monitors. The article describes Matt Alfrey, who has six monitors. <laughs> He's a trader at Pacific Crest Securities in Portland, Oregon, and his wall of monitors is a blur of messages, headlines, charts, graphs, and stock tickers that he watches to help predict patterns in the market. So, if you've been itching to add an extra monitor, or two, or three, now might be a good time to scratch that itch. Kodak is still trying to find a place in today's photography landscape. It has decided to stop manufacturing digital cameras, video cameras, and digital picture frames. That's a good decision, and it's one that's about 10 years too late. Kodak made some of the worst digital cameras, and many people who bought one said they would never buy another. So instead of continuing to manufacture low-quality devices that do little but annoy customers, the company has decided to concentrate on photo printing, which it does well and profitably, and desktop inkjet printers. Kodak is currently in bankruptcy proceedings and says the changes should save about $100 million per year. Kodak president and chief marketing officer Pradeep Jatwani says that Kodak has been making modifications to eliminate operations that have been run at a loss, and this week's announcement was the logical extension of that process given our analysis of the industry trends. If you own a Kodak camera, the company will honor warranties and provide technical support. Kodak is also working with retailers in light of the fact that this week's announcement significantly reduced the value of any Kodak cameras in stock. Thanks to a listener in Germany who once worked for the BBC, TechBiter Worldwide has a brighter sound. Nicholas Bequet's ears are clearly better than mine, and when he said the podcast needed some technical changes, I decided to give them a try. The podcast is now larger, actually about twice as large as it would have been, as a result of changes to settings used to create the MP3 file. Instead of the 32 kilobits per second setting that I'd been using, this week's program is encoded at 64 kilobits. Probably more important than that is the sampling rate. Instead of a sampling rate of 22 kilohertz, which is adequate for reproducing sounds up to about 11 kilohertz, I switched to the more standard 44.1 kilohertz sampling rate, so frequencies at the higher end of the mid-range will be reproduced more clearly. Additionally, the voice track is now being processed by a custom-designed filter that rolls off low-end frequencies and provides a significant boost to the mid-range frequencies. The result is a voice track that should be a bit easier to understand. Nearly six years ago, I considered the overall size of the podcast to be important because that would allow people who still had dial-up connections to listen. 
Given TechBiter's larger page size and higher quality images that are acceptable because of the widespread adoption of high-speed connections, it seemed time to improve the audio, too. So, thanks to Nicholas Bequet for the suggestion. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.